But today does mark the start of a new series. Today, we're going to be in James for the next several weeks. So I thought I would start us off by helping us to get to know, get to know the author a little bit. He writes this letter, but there's some facts I want to share with you. So did you know that James is the brother of Jesus? Right? It's true. Somehow, I don't even know how it came up because it's not what we were discussing at camp a couple of weeks ago, which if you've worked with children, you know that oftentimes you have a plan, you think it's going to go one way, and then you're like, wait, what are we talking about even? So somehow we got talking about how James was Jesus's brother, and somebody said, wait, I thought Jesus was an only child. And so I could answer that pretty simply and say, no, actually it says in the Bible that he had several brothers and sisters. So I was pretty confident with that one. And then after that, somebody said, wait, so you're trying to tell me Mary was married more than once? That got a little trickier. Um, so I think I said something like, oh, no, 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 they don't have the same dads. Mary wasn't ever married to Jesus' dad because Jesus' dad is a spirit. And so then it didn't go well, right? It didn't go well. Um, so if that was your child, I apologize. I probably screwed them up forever, but I did tell them, go ask your mom and dad. Because we have other things to talk about, and that's the beauty of it. You know, you can just ruin them and then send them back home. So I apologize. But another cool thing that I thought was fascinating about James is that although he was the brother of Jesus, he didn't in fact become a follower of Jesus or a Christian until after Jesus' resurrection. Which I guess shouldn't be so fascinating to me, because if you're a sibling, I, I get. Maybe James is like, eh, we'll make him sweat it out a little bit. Have him wait a little bit. Or maybe because he lived with him and he saw him in the purest form, he was like, no way. And maybe after the resurrection, he was like, I can't believe he was telling the truth the whole time. What in the world? But either way, we know that regardless of how it happened, when he made the decision to follow Jesus, he went all in. He became a great leader in the church and eventually died for his belief in Jesus. Right? So he's a great man of God. And yet I learned this week, in the past couple of weeks probably, that James is a really practical guy. And you probably know somebody, a friend or a family member. I live with practical man. Mr. Practical is my husband. He is not a man of like extra words or fluff. It's like, what do you need? Okay, let's go do that. He's not a conversationalist. We're very similar. Very similar. Yeah. It works. Somehow it works by the grace of God. But James is a lot like this. But that practicality uh, didn't sit well with everybody, especially in the early church or even theologians now. In fact, some people would even argue that James should not be in Scripture that his letter should not be included. Some people say it's not even Christian. And the reason they say those things is because this letter focuses so much on the works of people. It looks a lot like Old Testament law. And they say that he doesn't spend enough time, if any time, on what it looks like to be saved through faith. Martin Luther even called James's epistle an epistle of straw, because he didn't think it included anything about the gospel and it had no theology. 
See, much of the New Testament is written by Paul. And one hand, we have Paul who's fighting and writing about Jewish Christians who were really holding tightly to the, the Old Testament law, ritual, rules, they were rule followers. And he was trying to say, no, Jesus kind of changes some of that stuff. So he was writing to that audience, including so much of the gospel and salvation. And on the other hand, we have James that seems to be fighting and writing, arguing about once you receive salvation, some people thought there's just no moral code. We have no rules anymore. So it seems like these letters contradict one another when really they're just addressing two major issues that were affecting the church at the time. One, Paul, we read more often, number one, there's more to read. He writes a ton. But it's because we want the gospel and he includes the gospel. But what we have to remember is the gospel changes us from the inside out. And so when we're changed from the inside out, it should change the way that we live, right? Because what we think about God and what we believe about God, our theology, it should not only help us understand more about who God is, but it should help us to answer the question, how should we live? So this is what I appreciate about James. He understands who God is, probably more than anybody, right? He was his brother. And so his teaching is trying to figure out how can we take our theology and how can we make it practical? Because he's concerned with the actual doing or use of something rather than with theory and ideas. So James, chapter 1, James is writing this letter to a group of Jewish Christians who are scattered. And they're scattered because they're facing persecution. They're on the run. They're literally dying because they believe in Jesus. And not only that, they're dealing with issues of great famine and poverty. They're struggling. I think that's safe to say. They're definitely going through a trying time and their faith was being tested for sure. So here's the advice that James gives to this audience in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Pretty straightforward, right? Pretty easy to understand, maybe? Here's my question. How did James not get kicked square in the teeth for that advice, right? You're going through all this stuff, famine, poverty, persecution. You reach out to help. You write a letter and you're like, hey, help us out. What's your advice? And he's like, hey, consider it joy. I'd literally kick him in the teeth. He would get in the throat punch for sure. Like, don't tell me. The last thing I want to hear when I'm going through it is like, hey, be happy. I lost my job. Woohoo! Right? 
Like, the doctor just called with bad news. Hooray! I'm overjoyed that I get to continue with this chronic pain. Or my kid's been diagnosed with special needs. I have a terminal illness. I'm stuck in a relationship that I just don't see there's going to be a breakthrough. Pure joy. And the list goes on, and you know what I'm talking about because these are your trials. And these are my trials. These are things that we have gone through, that we continue to go through, that we've watched other people go through, that we will go through. And for some, it seems like it's just blow after blow, just thing after thing. And it doesn't seem fair. And it's definitely not easy. But what's our attitude when they come? Do we count them as joy? Because James tells us that we should. But why? Because, in verse 3 it says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When we face trials and our faith is tested, it will make us stronger. And if we want to be the kind of enduring Christians, the kind of followers of Jesus that leave a legacy for generations to come, the kind of people who are steadfast and unwavering, we're mature and holy, then we need these trials. They help us to become the kind of people that God created us to be. They are meant for our good even when it's hard for us to believe that. So if maturity and wholeness, completeness, having perfect faith is the goal, James is arguing that perseverance is the only way to reach it. Because perseverance describes believers who face trials and remain faithful. So I played volleyball in college and part of my commitment to this team was that I would do summer workouts in order to be prepared for the preseason, right? You'd come back, you'd work out all summer, and then in the fall, you'd go back to school, and they'd expect you to, like, hit the ground running. You better be in shape or you will be sore. And so my family went to Montana for most of the summers because my family has a cabin there. And I was lucky enough, eh, I don't know if that's the right word, I had a sister that also played college volleyball, and she loves to exercise. I don't love the same things as she loves. She would be more like, you know, Rocky Balboa, and I would be more like, not that. And so she would help me because she would be in Montana. She had played the volleyball. She knew the ropes. She knew how this worked. And so she'd be like my workout partner, my encouraging workout partner. And so we'd get together, and she'd say, do you see the mailbox way down the road? And I'd be like, no, I do not. See anything in the distance at all? She's like, well, it's way down there. It's the white one down there. When we get there, we can stop and we can walk. I'm like, okay, I still don't see anything. I'm the kind of gal that's like, the minute I see it, the minute it comes in view, I'm like, okay, whew, we're there. We did it. And she's like, no, we are not there yet. Finish. 
And then she'd be, she's crazy. Like, people that like to exercise, they're just weird, right? So she would be like, the minute the mailbox came into view, she'd be like sprinting. She gets this burst of energy, and she finishes it. And then she'd probably even take it to the next level. She'd get to the mailbox, and she'd be like, let's do a little light jog to end it. And be like, no, you said walk. And that's what we're doing, right? I'm not a great example of persevering when things get tricky and tough. I want to quit because it's hard. But somebody who might be a better example is Paul. If you know Paul, dude was put through the ringer, right? If you know anything about him, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, stoned, imprisoned many times. You name it, it probably happened to him. But we also know, beside all this, in addition to all of this stuff, he had what he called a thorn in his flesh. So we're not exactly sure what that meant. That could have been some physical ailment or spiritual ailment, emotional pain, temptation, disability. We don't exactly know, but we do know that it was a source of real pain in Paul's life. He mentions it many times, and yet he persevered. Here's what he says about it in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Good for Paul, but how do we do this, right? How do we get to this point? How can we persevere through these trials in our lives? Here's how. This is at least what James says. Verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom... You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Ask, and it will be given to you. A couple of instances come to mind in the life of Jesus himself when he seeks out wisdom from his Father, right? One is when he's tempted in the wilderness, 40 days, he's starving, he's hungry, he's tired. And his faith was tested three times. And each and every time, he responded in the same way. He quoted scripture. He probably had it memorized. It would have been second nature to him, or maybe first nature, because he actually is God. Is that just, that maybe, maybe is more accurate, right? But either way, he responded the same way. The very words of scripture, we can seek God's wisdom by reading or even memorizing scripture. It's full of great wisdom. Or how about the time when Jesus, it says in Matthew 26, troubled and his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow, preparing for his own death on the cross. And what do we see him do? When he's full of sorrow and troubled, he retreats to a quiet place and he seeks God's wisdom. He says, is there another way? Can the cup be taken from me? He seeks God's help. 
And James is telling us we can do that too. When we're going through a trial, we can seek God's wisdom. We can go to scripture. We can pray. We can seek out advice from other godly people. There are so many ways that God wants to give us his wisdom. And the coolest thing about God's wisdom is that it's endless. It's not pre-portioned. It's not like, hey, here's what you got. Use it wisely. I wouldn't waste that. Right? It's not like the food in my house where I'm like, listen, I'm not going to the grocery store again for the fourth time this week. Right? Here's your portion. Use it wisely. That's not what God says. He says, here's it all. Right? Think about Norm's ice cream. If you've been there, you know. Right? Hey, I live by there. Don't judge me. We've been there a few times this week. We try to ride our bikes sometimes. It burns the calories. And then we can indulge. So if you've been there, you know. We have a three-year-old. And so I do know. I've been to Norm's a few times. And so I know that we need to order the baby size right? Or it's just going to be too much. So I say, hey, baby size cone. And I mean, like I did this with my hands, baby size cone. Here's the cone. This is how much ice cream I want. Just enough to like make sure he knows he's getting ice cream and that we love him. But not enough to make a complete mess everywhere. And I don't want to have to eat another ice cream like after he can't finish it. It's not, I'm not going to do it. I will not. I cannot. Okay, so in true norms fashion, what happens? Here it is. And I'm like, no, that's opposite of what I asked for, right? But that's how God pours out his wisdom. He's generous. We might ask for baby size and he's like, no, that's not what you need. You, you're, you're not going to get by with baby size. You need it all. But you guess what? You don't even have to pay for more when you come back. You can ask for more, and you're going to get it. It never runs out, and he wants to give it to us all, and he's not stingy or snobby about it. He's not going, you should have known better. You're not getting wisdom this time, because that's on you, right? It says he doesn't, he doesn't, he gives it out without fault, without judgment. All we got to do is ask for it. But then he does say there's one stipulation. When we ask for it, we need to trust that he'll give it to us. Don't doubt him. That's what James says. Here's the thing. You can ask with confidence because God wants to give it to you. So when you ask, know that you're going to get it. And even if you ask for a little bit, know that you're going to get a lot. But sometimes we do doubt God. Right? That's our flawed faith. That's not a flawed God. It's because we have flawed expectations of God. We don't have a flawed God. So as practical as James's teaching is, it really is only useful if we put it into practice, right? I've read this passage a bunch of times, preparing for this series, preparing for this message, and each and every time I read it, one story comes back to me. Probably because it's fresh in my mind and my heart. But I just couldn't escape it. This example, it just kept repeating. 
So I thought the best way for me to give us an example of what James's teaching might look like actually lived out in the world would be through the life of a man named Ken Ernie. Some of you may know Ken. He's a, been a pillar in Fruitport, um, in the community of Fruitport. He's been my husband's mentor and coach. He's been a longtime athletic director at Fruitport High School. And about three years ago, he was diagnosed with ALS, which currently is a fatal disease. There's no cure. In fact, the life expectancy is two to five years with the median lifespan of being 30 months. He knew that this illness was going to eventually and cruelly take his life. But about a year ago, Ken was inducted into the Muskegon Area Sports Hall of Fame and he received the Distinguished Service Award for all of his contributions in athletics. And Ken was able to record an acceptance speech that was played at the banquet. So I would like for us to take a look at that together now. No one is self-sufficient. And I have found that to be true in life and in sports. In my ALS journey, which almost to the day, two years ago, when we received that fatal diagnosis, my um, family immediately gathered around within minutes of leaving the hospital, gathered around and we prayed together and we cried together and unequivocally, my family said they've got our backs. And that also is proof that we need other people, that no one gets there alone and no one is self-sufficient. I've learned so many lessons in these last few years, including that God's promises are real, that this life is not all there is, that he is with me, he won't leave me, and that his grace is sufficient for me. And I'm so grateful that I can't do it alone. I'd like to thank my tribe, my family, and if I was given instructions that I could just thank one person, it would be my wife, Lori, um, who for 43 short years was the winner of the Perseverance Award. She's our family MVP. She was um, patiently holding down the fort for the many times that um, I was overcommitted or stayed late or um, as a wife of a coach or an administrator, she persevered. So I am grateful for her. And for my now adult children, Mindy, Steve, John, and Jess, you also persevered and you also supported and loved me beyond what I could ever imagine. You are very special adults and I'm just so proud of how you, who you've become. And to your spouses, Nicole and Jackie and Breckley and Ethan, especially during these last years, the toughest years of my life, you have been unbelievable. You have been phenomenal in your love and care and support. So thank you, family. 
Three simple truths. They're a format of always and because, and I'll close with these. First, always give your best because life is too short to just go through the motions. Always give your best. Second, always treat people really, really well because everyone you will ever meet has infinite worth. And lastly, always demonstrate unconditional gratitude because no matter what kind of day you've had, no matter how good or bad your performance was, or how bad your diagnosis is, there's always something to be thankful for. And along that line, I'm reminded of a recent song by Matthew West that has a small phrase in it that says, this life ain't always wonderful, but what a wonderful life it's been. I want to thank the committee for such a high honor. And once again, congratulate all the inductees. And God bless you all. Thank you. So sadly for us, about a month ago, Ken's battle with ALS came to an end. But if you ever had a chance to meet this man prior to ALS, you would have met a man of great faith. And if you had a chance to meet him through his journey with ALS, you would have watched a man with even greater faith. It was incredible. It was incredible to watch how his attitude, his outlook, and perseverance impacted an entire community of people. People that knew him, people that were strangers, people that were Christians, people that were not, people that had the same outlook on life, and people that were very drastically different. It was incredible to watch a man who knew that his trial was not going to end the way that he had probably hoped. And yet, even though he knew what the outcome was going to be, he considered it joy. A shirt that I saw Ken wear, and you maybe saw it in the video, the last couple of years was simply one that said, luckiest. Which is interesting, right? I think he actually, that was new to his wardrobe. I don't think he'd worn that before. And so he could don that with confidence because what Ken did is he adopted a model for his life, and it was, my life is not my own. See, Ken was living for a higher purpose. He had his sights set on eternity. And that's what shaped his perspective and his attitude, because he had hope. Many of you never knew that Ken didn't get the chance, and I wish you had. But even more than that, I want you to have the chance to know the God that Ken knew so well. 
the God who generously poured out his wisdom and his strength and his compassion and comfort to Ken through times of great trial. The God who was the perfecter of Ken's faith. The God who helped Ken realize that even though he couldn't walk or talk or eat on his own, he lacked nothing because he had God. See, Paul asked three times for God to take the flesh, the the thorn from his flesh. And Jesus asked over and over, is there another way? Ken, I'm sure, prayed for a different outcome. Yet I think they all bought into this belief that my life is not my own. And even so, when the outcome wasn't what they had hoped for or asked for, they could persevere. Because here's the good news. Our pain not only has a purpose, but it also has a reward. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. See, in light of eternity, our trials become a little bit more bearable. And when we persevere through the trials, there's a great reward. We get to grow in our faith. We get to become more mature, complete, whole people. And when we come to realize that our lives are not our own, even when we have nothing, we have everything because we have God. So here's the question for us. Can we be people who in the midst of trials are able to express gratitude and consider it all joy. But in order to do this, we need higher wisdom. We need help from God. So I want to ask for that today. So as we close and we pray together, here's what I want us to do. I want us to name that thing that we're going through. I want us to give it a name of the trial, the struggle. Maybe it's not even your own right now. Maybe you want to lift somebody else up that you just know is is struggling right now. They're going through it. Their faith is being tested. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold that in your hands as we pray. And as we pray, I want us to release that to God. So name it, clench it in your fist, own it. But you know how we often keep it this way? Because we think it's our burden to bear. But that's not what James says. That's not what God says. He says, give it to me. Cast all your cares upon me. Let me carry your burden. So let's do that today. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now with our clenched fists. These things, these trials, these tests, these struggles in our lives or other people's lives that we love so much. And these things are heavy for us to carry. And so as we open our hands and release these burdens to you, these trials and these tests to you, we trust them to you. We trust that you're going to give us your wisdom. You're going to help guide our steps for what you want us to do next. How do you want us to travel through this trial with you as the leader? So we don't have to carry these by ourselves. That's never how you designed us to be. So God, would you help us to trust you 
in your infinite, in your generous wisdom that you want to give to us, we ask for it today. Right now, would you fill these empty hands with your wisdom? Your grace, your hope. Because you're good, we can trust you. That even if the outcome of our trial is not the way that we want it to end, we trust that you're working things for good. We trust you in the midst. And we're thankful that you want to be the perfecter of our faith. That you want us to be mature, enduring, persevering Christians that leave a legacy for generations to come. So God, would you fill us with your love, with your goodness, with your hope, with your wisdom. And we can ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.